So I know that today, no doubt everybody here knows, that today is indeed Father's Day. Uh, We are not going to be looking at a specific Father's Day passage today, but I do just want to remind us that Father's Day is an opportunity to remember our fathers, and it's great, and it's wonderful to celebrate our fathers. It's wonderful to celebrate that we are fathers. But also, this is still the day we come together to worship the Lord Jesus, and we worship our Heavenly Father, who is greater than all fathers. And so today, as we go to this passage, I just want to remind us that as we, as we take God's Word, we can apply it to our lives in every way, including how we can be better fathers, how we can love our fathers more, and indeed how we can love all people more. And today we're going to see Jesus' love and compassion on display. We've already seen it a few times. This is not going to be the first time we've seen it. But we see Jesus' love and compassion on display for an undeserving group of people that really to many people of Jesus' day would have been surprising. And so we're going to look at that today and we're going to see how Jesus shows compassion and love and kindness as Really, in one way, yes, the shepherd of people, but also the father of many. And so we're going to look at that today. Um, and uh, before we get started into today's passage, and so you know we'll be in Matthew 15, 21 through 39. Uh, we do not have a PowerPoint today. That's my fault. So, um, But follow along, Matthew 15, 21, that's where we'll be today. Uh, but before we get there, let's just do a quick little review Uh, And many of you, if you've been following along with us through the book of Matthew, you'll know some of these things. I do see some faces among us that maybe you haven't been here for the whole series. So I'll give you a a really quick overview of the book of Matthew that we've seen so far as we've been going from chapter 1 all the way now until Matthew 15. We see that the book of Matthew really shows us that Jesus has been teaching and showing that the heavenly kingdom has arrived through him. That the heavenly kingdom has come, and it's come through the Messiah, and that the Messiah is indeed Jesus. He himself is the Messiah. So Jesus, throughout the book of Matthew, we've seen him teaching, we've seen him healing, we've seen him casting out demons, we've seen him doing miraculous, amazing things, and we've seen him teach in miraculous, amazing ways. And we've been watching Jesus do that through the book of Matthew, and we'll continue to see that through this whole book. Again, remembering that the whole point of all scripture is to look and see Jesus, but we see him super clearly here being one of the four gospels that tell about his life. And so we're going to continue to see that today. So we got to keep in our mind that what is Jesus all about? What is his mission been? And it's really been to teach and to show that the heavenly kingdom is here. And so he's going to continue to show that in a different way today, but we're going to see it there. Now, As we've been going through this, so we've seen what Jesus has been teaching and doing, but now we flip the page and say, what have people been, how have people been responding to this? And if you look through the book of Matthew, you'll remember that you see groups of people who seem to be receiving uh, the message that Jesus is bringing. They seem to be following along with him. Maybe his disciples, maybe some, you know, the closest ones to him, some others. Uh, We've also, though, throughout this book and really seen, and this is kind of seeming to be more common, is the rejection of this message. We've seen the Pharisees and, and many Jewish people who have rejected the message that Jesus has brought. So we've seen Jews have received this message so far in this book, but many have also rejected it. So some have received it, many have rejected it. And so we've been seeing that even though Jesus is bringing the greatest message ever, there are many people who are saying, no, this isn't 
right. This isn't the right message. I'm going to reject the message. I'm going to reject Jesus. And ultimately, I'm going to reject the kingdom because it's not the kingdom that I saw coming. It's not the kingdom I want. It's a different kingdom that I can't really get behind. And so we see Pharisees and others throughout the Jewish people who are rejecting Jesus. Even in his own hometown, we see that he gets rejected by the people that know him. And so it's been a theme, not only that Jesus has been showing and teaching the heavenly kingdom has come, but it's also been a theme to see that some have received while others have rejected him. So today we're going to look at the fact that after all of this rejection, Jesus brings the kingdom message to the Gentiles who gladly receive it. This is going to be a big deal as we look at today the mission that Jesus had, although understood by the Jewish people to be a Jewish Messiah that was coming to free the Jewish people of tyranny and of oppression, that Jesus' mission was much bigger and much more than just the Jewish people. And we're going to see that start to unfold. We've already seen snippets of that through the rest of this book, but now we're going to see it really start to just take off. And the reminder that I want us to continue to keep into our mind is this, that the kingdom of heaven knows no boundaries. The kingdom of heaven is not for a certain people or for a certain nation. The kingdom of heaven is not going to have physical boundaries. That's not the point of the kingdom of heaven. The point of the kingdom of heaven is a new way of living, a new world in which love and goodness is the, the norm. That it's a new world it's a new kingdom that is only coming through jesus it's a spiritual kingdom it will be a physical kingdom but it knows no boundaries it doesn't stop at a certain people group it doesn't stop at a certain boundary jesus's kingdom the kingdom of god expands throughout the whole world and so we will be reminded of that today so we're gonna pick it up in matthew chapter 15 verse 21 uh and I'm going to get to the title of the sermon in just a moment, Little Dogs, Big Faith. But before I get there, um, let's talk about dogs for a second. So little dogs, uh, little dogs, I have two, well I have one medium dog, one little dog. Uh, I'm going to tell you the most recent story of a little dog we just got. We just got a puppy, she's wonderful and annoying and all of those things. And she's decided that she wants to uh, go upstairs even though that's a forbidden area for her. And she's been running up the stairs the kids kind of let her up once and now she's never coming back. So she keeps going up the stairs. We're having to yell at her. And she's pretty disobedient. We're trying to get her under control just like any dog. Uh, and the other day she ran up the stairs and I realized something real fast that I hadn't realized before was that she was 100% okay being disobedient and doing what she shouldn't do by running up the stairs. But she was scared to death to come down the stairs. Now, I don't think it was because she was scared of me. I think she was scared of the stairs and didn't want to fall. So I come to the stairs, I call her down, and I look up, and she's at the top of our stairs, and the way our stairs come up, they come up, and then they turn left, and she's got her head just, just peeking around the corner, looking at me, and the look in her eyes, if dogs could talk, she was saying, you need to come get me, I'm too scared to come down. And so she's looking at me like that, I'm kind of frustrated that she's upstairs, but at the same time, she's so cute, she's a, she's a puppy. So I go up the stairs, I pick her up, and I carry her down the stairs, and she's as happy as can be. It's interesting there, and we're going to, as we're going to play into this little dog's thing in just a minute, because Jesus says something very interesting to a woman that in today's world you would think is crazy, but there's something going on there. But I want us to focus in on the idea that little dogs, even in their disobedient state, even puppies in their disobedient state, they still, they can trust their master. 
And they trust their master implicitly and they beg their master for things. And so that's really what was happening with my dog as she was begging to come down the stairs but needed help. Uh, other times she would, she'll hide behind me if she's scared. Other times that uh, she will make sure that, sh- that, I, that she is with me in a situation where there is nervousness happening because she trusts me as her master. And so we're going to see that little dogs, although they're little and sometimes can be annoying, sometimes are disobedient, they trust and believe their master. And that's going to be a big theme as we look at today's passage. So let's get there. Let's Matthew 15, uh, verses 29, or sorry, 21 through 39. And actually what we're going to do is we're going to break this up into three parts because I see really three scenes in today's passage that kind of show us the goal of what Jesus is trying to do here. So chapter 15, again, starting verse 21, and we are just going to uh, read through verse 28. So verse 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So, let's break this down, see what's happening. First of all, very first verse, don't miss this. Uh, Sometimes when we read this, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, we can think, okay, so he's just moving locations. Maybe he's going on vacation. Who knows why he's traveling? But there's a lot in this one little verse. You see that Jesus immediately after uh, immediately travels to an area that is, is Gentile and pagan as you can get. Tyre and Sidon were known to be hubs of idol worship. And this is where Jesus goes. He goes to a region in which it's not Jewish, it's Gentile people, but not only Gentile people, but the pagan people that are worshiping false gods. This is not where a typical Jewish rabbi would travel to. And yet, he, this is where he goes with his disciples, and they're traveling to this area. So we should already get a little bit of a picture that something's going to happen. Something big is about to happen. Uh, and so they go up to this area, and they're in an area that would be seen by the Jewish people as defiled and unclean in many ways. The people themselves were defiled and unclean, which I say that because it brings us back to what Pastor Justin talked about last week, when he talked about the conversation that Jesus had with both uh, the religious leaders as well as his own disciples about what it meant to be defiled. That the Jewish people look at defilement from coming from the outside in, where Jesus says defilement's not about what's on the outside, it's what's coming from within, the heart. And Jesus has already recorrected the Jewish people and even his own disciples about what is clean and what is unclean and what is defiled and what is undefiled. And then he takes it and he says, okay, I've taught you something, now I'm going to go prove it. Because he travels right to an area that would be off limits to most Jews. Uh, As we're talking, going to an area that is pagan, that is unclean, that is defiled by all sorts of ways that the Jewish people would look at that. And Jesus does that on purpose. Jesus goes to these people and we know something's going to happen. 
Then we see, as he travels there, he, gets, uh, he has a confrontation, I guess you could say, or a, uh, an interaction with this Canaanite woman. So scene one is Jesus and the Canaanite woman. So Jesus is sought out by a Canaanite woman who asked him to heal her daughter. This is just the factual statement. A woman comes to him, we're told that she's a Canaanite, and that she asked Jesus to heal her daughter specifically says that she's been demonized. We don't know exactly what that means, but for whatever, in whatever way it's happened, this woman knows that her daughter needs to be healed. And so uh, she comes to Jesus. Now this is interesting in and of itself. She's told, we're told that she's a Canaanite. Let's look at that for a moment. We're told that she's a Canaanite. Now uh, Mark, when he tells this story, says that she's a Syrophoenician woman. Uh, so that's more about where physically she's from. But this is more about what Canaanite would bring up in the mind of a Jewish person. If you think about the Canaanites, what are the Canaanites? Well, they're the people that the Jewish people came in to take the promised land, and they've been really plagued by the Canaanites all their history because there's always been Canaanite people around them that have been battling against them and fighting against them, and Canaanites were synonymous with idol worship and were synonymous with all sorts of horrible behavior and horrible things. And so Matthew, I think, is making the point because we're about to see that Jesus is going to flip things around on the Jewish people to say, uh, here is a Canaanite woman. So this is one of the worst of the worst, a sinful, idolatrous person, or at least a sinful, idolatrous people, the Canaanites are, a thorn in the side of Israel. Now, Jesus is about to say something about dogs, but let's just keep it in mind that the Jewish people would have looked at all Gentiles, but specifically Canaanites who are this evil in their eyes as scavenging wild dogs. They would have this discriminatory way of talking about them by calling them dogs. Uh, but it was more of a, uh, you're a, a dirty dog, you are a, a, a unclean dog. And that's what many Jewish people would view Gentiles in a whole as, but also the people around them here as Canaanites. And so a Canaanite woman comes, this, this woman that everyone from the Jewish society would have seen as a wild dog. She shows up and then she asks him to heal her daughter. Now, at first, Jesus doesn't answer. I'll get to that in a moment. He kind of just ignores it. The disciples say, hey, send her away. She's annoying us. Okay. Um, interesting thought about the annoying part of their thinking. They're probably at this point still have this idea of thinking that maybe this woman is not who somebody they should be around. And so they're trying to have Jesus just deal with it however he needs to and get rid of her. Uh, but Jesus uh, isn't about that. He's going to do something amazing. Now, I do want to get to the point where he says, uh, as he's talking to her, he, he first of all, in verse 24, says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So this is a very hard statement. Maybe you've heard this before, read this before, and thought, how can Jesus call people dogs? So, I, listen, this is, in, this is in wording, this is in writing. I have to assume, and this is my assumption putting it out there, I have to assume that the tone Jesus was using here was not a discriminatory, hateful tone. I, I think this is kind of a little bit of a sarcastic tone, if I'm guessing. Like, and not sarcastic in the mean way, but sarcastic in like, I'm not really supposed to give anything to the dogs. Like, try, it's almost like a leading question. I feel like that's kind of what it is as Jesus says this. I don't believe that Jesus agrees that she is a scavenging dog. Actually, it's interesting. The word he uses here is not the word for a scavenger dog that would be a wild, dirty dog that the Jews would use for 
talking about Gentiles, it's actually the word that means little household dog. So basically, talking about Coco, my, my, little, my little puppy, right? So uh, a household dog. So now, I'm not getting away from the fact that he still does use the word dog, so it still seems discriminatory, but the fact that he uses a different word for it, I believe is trying to get to a point where Jesus is, is saying what he knows the Jews are thinking. Does that make sense? Maybe sometimes you've done that in your life. Like, to make something clear, you know somebody's thinking something, and you, so you say it the way that you know that they're thinking it. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying what he knows his disciples even, and other Jews would say. Well, first of all, he says, well, the Messiah is only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we know throughout all of Scripture, we look at context, that Jesus did not believe that he was only sent to the Jews. We're about to see that that's not true. What he's saying here again is he's agreeing with what the people of Israel would, would have thought. But she's not going to let it go off the hook. She's not going to say, oh, okay, fine, you're only here for Israel, I'm leaving. No, she continues to beg, Lord, help me. She has complete trust in the fact that Jesus can do what she is asking. And then he says it's not right to take the children's bread, talking about the people of Israel, and throw it to the dogs. Then she comes back uh, and says, yeah, but even the little dogs, the, the household dogs, eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. In other words, she's already understanding that Jesus is more than just the Jewish Messiah, that he has so much blessing, it's pouring down even to the Gentiles, and she's ready to receive it. Even if she views this as crumbs, it's still the greatness of Jesus that she's asking for. And so then Jesus answers and says, O woman, great is your faith. Have it be done for you as you desire. So we see that this idea of a little dog, uh, he's really using it to drive home a point. I believe that Jesus, by ignoring her at first, and then having this conversation that's the back and forth conversation, seems to be simply a setup for the disciples who are watching this all unfold. It seems to be a setup for Jesus to show that he is about to heal a Canaanite woman's daughter and that his ministry is not limited to just the people of Israel because those people have rejected him and now he's coming to a people who will receive him and Jesus is using this as a teaching moment for all those who are watching to say no longer are we going to be looking at other people who aren't just like us as dogs. We're going to be looking at them as fellow believers. Faith, great is her faith. And that gets us to this third point in scene one. Jesus heals the daughter after seeing the woman's faith. I want to talk to you about what her faith looked like here. So many times we talk about faith and we wonder what exactly are we talking about. I believe that this faith was was more than just faith, uh, a, a hope. Like, oh, I really hope he can heal my daughter. No, I think as we look at this story, we see something happen. We see, first of all, she came to Jesus knowing who he was. Notice when she approaches him, what she calls Jesus. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Right away, she calls him master, which, okay, that's just a a really nice way to address somebody in the day. But then she goes one step farther, and she says, son of David. This Canaanite woman, some way, shape, or form, has heard about Jesus, has heard that he is the promised Messiah to Israel, and she knows that he is her master and that he is also the Messiah, Now, I don't know if she had a full understanding of what all that meant, but she knew something about him. She knew his identity. She knew who he was. 
Keep in mind, through the rest of Matthew, even his own disciples are struggling to figure out who he is. And yet, right here, she knows right away, he is the Lord and Messiah. And so she comes to him and addresses him that way. And I believe that's part of the faith she has, but it didn't stop there. Her faith then continued, not only knowing who Jesus was, but her faith continues in knowing what Jesus can do. And she puts her faith in Jesus to do something for her that she knows he's the only one that can do. Keep in mind, she's in an area she could have gone to any pagan temple to try to receive healing for her daughter, but that's not where she went. She goes to Jesus, who she sees as her Lord and the Messiah. She goes and she knows what he can do, and she begs and pleads, and I love these simple words that she uses in verse 25, Lord, help me. It's humility, it's coming to Jesus and saying, I need you. And I think that's a great picture of faith for all of us. A faith that, yes, knows who Jesus is, studies who Jesus is, knows who he is, and understands the identity of Jesus, but it goes beyond just understanding it. It goes into a heartfelt understanding of what Jesus is doing, what he will do, and just coming to him and saying, Lord, please help. Just a desperate, humble need for him. And so Jesus says, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. Jesus commands her, or commends her great faith. Now, I love that this word is used, great faith. It's used one other time with a Roman centurion earlier in this book. But how many times does he refer to his own disciples as having little faith? find it very interesting here that it's not been too long since we've seen the walking on the water scene where Peter has little faith, ye have little faith. Now we see a woman who has said, great is your faith. And I think Jesus is again making the very clear point that <clears throat> receiving him is not based on nationality, it's not based on borders, it's based on faith in him. And we'll see more about that at the end of our sermon today. Scene two then, scene two comes out. After the Canaanite woman, in verse 29 through 31, this is what we see happen. Let's read along. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered. And they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. So scene two is Jesus and the crowd. So we're going to see to start with Jesus is being followed here by a mostly Gentile crowd. Now you might not understand that right away. It says he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. But it, as you look to Mark, it says that he was doing this in the Decapolis, which is around the other side of the Sea of Galilee, away from Israel. This would have been a very, very predominantly Gentile area. The cities that were there would have been predominantly Gentile so he goes from a really bad area of Tyre and Sidon over to the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis with all of the, the people who are... Now there's surely some Jews there, but there's also going to be a lot of Gentiles there. And he starts to heal them. That's what we see happen. He is followed by a mostly Gentile crowd, and he heals the crowd. And as he heals them, he is wondered at by them. He heals the crowd and is wondered at by them. Jesus is still showing that he is willing to minister outside of just the people of Israel and within the borders of Israel. It's an interesting development in the mission of God, in the kingdom of God. Remember, Jewish people would have seen the kingdom as their kingdom. But Jesus is now reaching out and going out. He's gone to Tyre and Sidon. He's now here preaching to a bunch of Gentile 
crowds and, and healing in the crowds. By the way, it doesn't say he's preaching or teaching, but based on the pattern of Jesus, he almost, he's always teaching and preaching together. They're, they're kind of, they, they go hand in hand. But either way, he's ministering to these people, healing all who come to him. And so we see Jesus is doing something compassionate and loving for people who maybe the Jews would have said you shouldn't do it for. And then we see this statement that Jesus then brings glory to God through the lips of Gentiles. He brings glory to God through the lips of Gentiles. After all this healing has happened, this last line and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now this is another reason why it seems to be very obvious that most of these people are Gentiles. Because to say they glorify the God of Israel, to make that distinction, means that they wouldn't have been glorifying that God beforehand. So what is the point here is that Jesus is, what he is doing is pointing people to Yahweh, pointing people to the God of Israel and away from the idols around them. And so Jesus is ministering to them, he's ministering to these Gentiles, and God is getting glory through the lips of Gentiles, which would be preposterous to any Jewish person, that, it, that the lips of Gentiles could glorify their God in this, ma- in this mass way, in this crowd. And so we, that's the second scene we see, is that Jesus continues to minister to the little dogs, if you will, the people that maybe the Jews would not, but he would. Then we see scene three, which kind of comes right after scene two, obviously. After he's healing the many in the crowd, we see Jesus and the meal. Jesus and the meal. Starting in verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place, to feed such a great crowd. And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of of Magadan. All right. So, Jesus is with the crowds. He's been healing the crowds. He's been ministering to the crowds for three days, we're told. And he sees they're hungry. And we see that Jesus has compassion on the hungry crowd. They could have easily sent them away. Just like, by the way, he could have easily sent away the Canaanite woman. But instead he sees that they are hungry and he has compassion. This is not much different than when he fed the 5,000. We want to make sure that we are understanding that this is a separate account. This is a separate event. The feeding of the 5,000 was in a different area. It was with different people. Uh, Now this is the feeding of the 4,000. It's a completely different event. Which is going to be interesting as we look at this because there's going to be some comparisons made. Jesus has compassion just like he did when he fed the 5,000 in Israel. And it's been three days of ministry, so no doubt the supplies among the people are dwindling and are no longer there. And so Jesus has compassion. He could have chose to send them away, but the compassion he has, and he says to his disciples, I have compassion on this crowd. We need to feed them. It's interesting, when it happened in uh, in Israel with the 5,000, the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, these people are really hungry. We, we can't feed them. We need to send them away. They present the problem. Jesus here presents the problem to them. 
But Jesus plans to meet the needs, despite the doubts of the disciples. This is crazy to me. And it's going to be seen later on in this book. So after he says, hey, these guys are really hungry. They, we need to feed them. I'm, I'm, not going to let them, I'm not going to send them away hungry. So Jesus is already saying, hey, I'm going to feed them, right? Jesus is already, he tells the disciples, I'm going to feed these people. That's what he says. And the disciples look at him and say, well, where are we going to get enough bread? Where are we going to get enough food? We're in a desolate place. Like, there's no food to be around. Well, what are we going to do? What? Uh, guys, I mean, 5,000, just uh, not too long before this, Jesus fed them all. Like, are you really doubting? But they are. They still just don't get what's going on here. And I have to believe part of it, and I, uh, this, is, this is just my, me adding this in, but part of it I have to wonder is, is it because of the makeup of the crowd? Is it because it's not a bunch of their Jewish brothers and sisters, but it's a lot of Gentiles? And so maybe they don't think that God can do this. Maybe they think that it's not wor- they're not worthy of it. I don't know any of that. But for whatever reason, they're like, we don't, where are we going to find food? So didn't Jesus ask them the simple question, how many loaves do you have? And at this point, I have to assume the disciples are like, oh, man, of course. Like, Jesus, how many loaves do you have? I mean, they've got to know, okay, Jesus is going to do something cool again. All right, we, we're, trying, we're remembering now. And so they said seven and a few small fish. And Jesus, very similar to what happens in the 5,000, feeds the 4,000 people. So Jesus feeds 4,000 plus people. Keep in mind, this is 4,000 men plus women and children with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. Jesus does this miracle. Remember who he's ministering to. This is a largely Gentile crowd, and he does the same thing that he did to a largely Jewish crowd before. This is good. This is obvious symbolism this is obvious to show us that jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is not does not know boundaries it is not just for israel it is not just for the sheep it's also for the little dogs and and that's kind of what his whole point of this all three of these movements in this passage are all about is getting us to see getting his disciples to see that jesus's kingdom the ministry that he brings the kingdom that has come to the earth is not just for the jewish people but it's for people of all kinds all people are welcome into the kingdom of god it's interesting, I've read uh, some commentaries, and, I, and this seems to make sense, but since it's not clearly defined in here, I'm not going to say this is 100% for sure, but it does seem, since the Bible does like to use numbers as symbols, that it's very interesting here that seven loaves are used, and it ends with seven baskets. See, seven, as many of you might know, is the symbol of completion or perfection or wholeness. Uh, so in the 5,000, when, when they were fed... There were 12 baskets left over. Jesus was ministering to the people of Israel at that point. So 12 baskets would easily symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. The fact that the Messiah had come to the people of Israel. But then, now we see there's seven baskets. By the way, the words that are used here actually indicate that the seven baskets are bigger baskets than the 12 baskets were. Don't know if that matters or not. But the idea here is there's just as much food, if not more, when the feeding of the 4,000 is left over. But the seven baskets, if that's really a symbol of completion, it kind of makes sense that this is showing that Jesus's kingdom is coming to the whole world, a symbol of wholeness. It's not just for the 12 tribes any longer, but it's for all the world, the whole world. And Jesus's message of the new kingdom that the, God, the godly heavenly kingdom is here, has come not just to the Jewish people, but also to Gentiles. And so we see this amazing thing happening as Jesus' mission. And I read this somewhere that said this was almost Jesus' first missions trip. Like he went out to Tyre and Sidon and then to the Galilee and did all of these things to show 
that God's kingdom has come to the whole world. So that leads me to just bring some implications and some thoughts to what we need to understand about what this is all about. Because these are really interesting stories, but how does it really impact how we live? Let's take a few minutes just to consider this. Well, the first thing I want to ask for all of us in this room is it's very obvious, as we've seen through the book of Matthew and even here, we've seen now that there's Gentile people who are receiving Jesus' message, even though he'd been rejected by his own people. We've seen that, we see that happening. John 1 tells us that happened. I'm going to read that in just a moment. But the question that we have to ask is, are you, are we going to receive or reject Jesus? This is a decision, this is a commitment that we make to either receive who Jesus is and what he's done, receive the message of the kingdom, or we can flat out reject it. It's, it's something that is, is there for us. It's just like the Jews and the Gentiles here. We, some rejected, some received. How about you? How about us? John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you want to turn over there with me. Uh, John 1 tells us about this a little bit more, and I love this passage we read John 1.12 often, but we don't read what comes before it very much. John 1, 9 through 13. John 1, 9 through 13. Here we read this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Obviously, this is talking about Jesus, the Word. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of will, or of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I love this passage as it talks about those who receive him become his children. That many have rejected, but if you receive, you become a child of God. You get to move, really, yeah, you could look at it this way as we're going with this analogy of the dog. You get to go from the household pet to the child. Now, I know some people treat their dogs like kids. It's weird, but <laughs> that doesn't apply here. The point is, sorry, my mind. Uh, so uh, my point here is simply that if you receive Jesus, receive his message, you become a child. You sit at the table. You sit at the table. You don't have to eat the crumbs. You're there to enjoy all that God has to offer because you are his child. By receiving Jesus. And what does receiving Jesus look like? Well, G- Jesus lived a perfect life. He came to show us what it looked like to live the life that honored God. He then ministered, as we've been seeing through the book of Matthew, he taught that he indeed is the new kingdom. He's bringing the new kingdom. He's the new king that we need to honor and respect and follow. And so Jesus then taught and preached and said, I am the Messiah. I am the one that has come to set all things right. And then he dies on the cross He says, I'm going to take the punishment for everyone's sin, the times that we've all turned our back on God, the times that we've gone our own way, the times that we've rebelled against God. And Jesus says, I'm going to take the punishment for that so that these people don't have to die and be separated from God's goodness and graciousness for the rest of eternity, but instead they can experience the fullness of a relationship with God again. And Jesus came and died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Then he rose again three days later. He rose again to prove that the kingdom that he came to proclaim, he is ready to take, to, he has he proven that everything that he has said and done and even his very death was exactly what it was, the truth. 
that he rose again and said, I have the power over sin and death. Follow me and you too will have eternal life. Jesus died and rose again. He ascended back to heaven. He's waiting right now to come back one day. All of that, that is what we can receive. Receive the message of Jesus. Don't reject it. If you receive it, you are his child. If you reject it, you are a scavenger dog on the outside of the house. Don't reject it. Receive it. If you have not received Jesus, if you have not come to him in faith, Remember the faith of knowing who he is and also trusting in what he'll do and just being desperate enough to say, Jesus, I need you. To humble yourself to the point of calling out for his salvation. If you have not done that, don't be like the Jews who rejected Jesus here, but be like the Canaanite woman. Be like these Gentile people who knew who Jesus was, knew what he could do, and just put their faith and trust in him and him alone. Today is the day you can do that. You don't need to clean everything up first. You know, you don't have to, the Canaanite woman didn't need to become a Jew to become a Christian, to know Jesus, right? So she knew Jesus because she trusted him. That's the point. Trust Jesus. Second thing that I want to say to us today is we should be thanking God for bringing us into his family. Just read about how those who receive him become his children, Uh, There's so many passages in here, I want to talk quickly. So we might think as we read this about how, well, surely this is, this could have been a missions message because we're, we're learning that we need to go out to the whole world to spread the gospel. And that is absolutely true. But I want you to keep in mind that the Gentiles that are being ministered to by Jesus here are really us. Many of us aren't Jewish people. We are Gentiles. We're pagans in the sight of the Jewish people, I suppose. And the point is, Jesus came to not only save the Jews, but to save all of us. And so we need to thank God for this. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. You know these verses. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we see here in this passage, right there in in, in verse 16, and in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from what? Faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Jew or Greek or Gentile or uh, American or any other country, you, you fill in the blank. Any type of people, including us, have been brought into the kingdom of God because of Jesus and what he's done and what he's taught. And we are brought into the kingdom through faith. And we need to be thankful for that. And praise God that even though he came, yes, to the Jewish people originally, but his ministry was so much bigger and now we can stand here today knowing Jesus for ourselves. Galatians 3 is also a very similar passage. Galatians 3, as we look at this, we see that the same idea is true. That the gospel is for all of us. And we need to be so thankful for that. That it's not just for a certain few. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek... There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. For if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If we are in Christ, if we have our heirs of Abraham's offspring, by the way, what was that? What is that all about? It's all about faith. Abraham had faith. And again, it comes down to faith. We are all sons in verse 26. We are all in Christ Jesus if we are sons of God through faith. 
So that's the idea. We have faith and therefore now there is no distinction in the sense of Jesus is not only for the Jews. Jesus is not only for the Greeks. Jesus is not only for slaves. He's not only for free people. He's not only for men. He's not only for women. He is for everyone. Everyone who will come to him in faith can believe and have eternal life through Jesus. Would we praise him and thank him today for that? The gospel is for all of us. Thank you, Jesus. And finally, I want to say this last thing, uh, and this kind of goes away from even what we've seen in Matthew, but there's another passage I want to read real quickly, and I want to say this. In the midst of talking about dogs, in the midst of talking about who the real dogs are versus who the real children are, there are real dogs in this world, and I want to say this to everyone, beware of the real dogs. Beware of the dogs. Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. This passage is going to just give us one more thing to think about as we think about what really is a dog. The Jews thought that the, jo- the dogs were people who weren't one of them. That everyone that we saw outside of us is a dog. That's how the Jews would look at it. And unfortunately, sometimes we can even, <clears throat> we would never call people that, but we have that same idea as we look around the world around us and we look at people and almost treat them as, the, as dirty dogs. But there are real dogs in this world. We should love and have compassion on those people who are different than us, and that is what Jesus showed. But let's look at the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. Paul says this, Look out for the dogs. By the way, he's not talking about real dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, but have no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Uh, <clears throat> if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything to be loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that... Uh, from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by all means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul here says, look out for the dogs. And then he goes on and say, what is, the, what is that? It's people who put confidence in the flesh. People who put confidence in themselves. People who put confidence in who they are, what they've done, how good they are. So here's the thing. We need to beware of the dogs. We need to beware of the teaching that says if you do all the right things and say all the right things and be the right type of person, then you can have favor with God. Then you can pursue God. Then you can have a relationship with God. That's what Paul is saying, I have everything I could possibly have to brag about. If I was, if anyone was going to be able to inherit eternal life because of goodness, because of who they are, it would be me. That's what Paul is saying. But then he's saying, I'm throwing all of that away. It's all rubbish. It's all dung. It's all worthless. And I'm throwing it all away to follow Jesus, to have faith in him. I'm not going to have faith in my flesh, but I'm going to have faith in Jesus himself. And so I would say two things. First of all, 
don't place our confidence, don't place your confidence in your flesh. Meaning, don't place your confidence in your relationship with God based on who you are, what you've done, what you're planning on doing, or anything that you own or anything that you are like. It's not about you. If you believe that your relationship with God is either instituted or continued by the fact that you are able to be a certain way or do a certain thing, that's called good works. That's not going to get you into heaven. That's not going to get you eternal life. That's not a real relationship with Jesus. A real relationship with Jesus is not saying, look, God, I'm doing all these things for you. Uh, I'm doing all this. Look at me. A real salvation says, God, look at what you've done for me. And so I want to encourage you, don't put confidence in the flesh and don't believe the lies of this world that says our performance and what we do and who we are is what makes us acceptable to God. Only through having faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus is the only way we have true, lasting, eternal life and hope in Jesus. Don't let the real dogs, don't let the dogs of saying that we should live according to our flesh overwhelm us, but instead let us live by faith in Jesus. That is our calling, a faith that says, I know who you are and I know what you'll do, and Lord, please help me. Let's pray as we close. Lord, I thank you for this reminder today from these people that you chose to minister to. Jesus, you didn't have to go to these people. You chose to out of compassion and love to bring people into the kingdom that others would have said shouldn't be a part of the kingdom. God, would you help us today to think about all that we've heard, all that we've read, God, that we would be thankful for the fact that you've brought us into the family. God, that we would be looking to reach out to others to bring them into the family. And God, that we wouldn't be putting any confidence in ourselves, but put all of our confidence in you and you alone. Would you help us to do that today as we consider what you've shown us here in Matthew today? We thank you that you are the God who continues to love us and show us mercy each day. That you are the one who will come to help us when we call out to you. We praise you and thank you for that this morning. Would you please continue to teach us as we go through this day together? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
the, the prize is kids that come to hear the gospel.